This episode of Tundra Talk is brought to you by Frontier Outfitters. You've heard us mention them on the podcast before, and if you're in Fairbanks or you're going to be coming through Fairbanks for a fishing, hunting, or camping trip, it's a great place to stop and get what you need. It's a locally owned Fairbanks business that I've been shopping at since I came up here, and really it's the type of sporting goods store you would hope to find in a place like Fairbanks. They've got a ton of hunting, fishing, trapping, and camping supplies, including backpacking meals and stoves, clothing, real rain gear, good footwear, including mountain hunting boots like Loa, rubber boots like Extra Tufts and Lacrosse, and they also have a great selection of guns, ammo, shooting and hand loading supplies, and even muzzle loading stuff. Now, they also carry a wide variety of fishing and dip netting equipment to tackle just about any fish Alaska has to offer. In Century Hardware downstairs, you'll be able to find a big selection of marine, snow machine, and ATV supplies like ramps, hitches, gun boots, um, good gas jugs, not the junk you find everywhere else, and all sorts of odds and ends for your boat or anything else you could need, and of course, whatever hardware you might find yourself in need of. In fact, it's one of those stores that you'll usually end up leaving with more than you planned on buying because they're really good at finding and stocking things that you just didn't realize you needed until you saw them. Frontier Outfitters is located in the Gavor Mall on 3rd and Old Steese in Fairbanks, as well as Century Hardware out in North Pole. It's a great store, so next time you're gearing up, get on down there and tell them you heard about it on Tundra Talk. This episode of Tundra Talk is also brought to you by Hedgecock Group Real Estate, a local brokerage that can cover your real estate needs in the Fairbanks area, whether it's residential, commercial, or just undeveloped property. The Hedgecocks have been active in the Fairbanks and North Pole real estate market since the early 80s and have put together a team that really reflects the diverse needs of homebuyers in interior Alaska. With a brokerage team made up of multi-generation Fairbanks locals, transplants, and military veterans, they really understand the unique aspects of living in the interior and what that means when it comes to shopping for a home in general, buying land to build a home, and they also understand the situations that many military members are in when needing to buy or sell a home in Fairbanks. This is really a unique place to live, and whether it's learning why some houses have water-holding tanks instead of wells, how much it'll cost to heat a given house, or just what recreational opportunities are close by, they're here to help you. More than simply acquiring or building a piece of property, they can help you find the right property in the right place and help you learn from their experience. The Hedgecock Group offices are on Noble Street in Fairbanks, and if you want to get in touch with them, visit www.fairbanksakhomes.com. That's how you do it. All right, welcome back to Tundra Talk, everybody. I'm Tyler Friel, and uh, really stoked to sit down today with my buddy that I've known for quite a while, Mr. Alan Mortensen. How's it going, man? It's going good. It's really been quite a while since I've seen you. Yeah, it has. You know, I think we've kind of texted back and forth a few times trying to trying to catch up, but like we were just talking about life. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, it gets in the way. Everybody's busy, and it seems like as you get older and just careers and, you know, you kids and everything else, it just, it gets harder to, to make everything click. Yeah, it certainly doesn't slow down at all. Well, uh, and I don't know when... It was at some point in college when we, you know, I don't, I can't remember like whenever I first met you or anything, but something around drinking beer probably is what it, yeah, what probably. It had a circle, the circle of friends we hung out with. But uh, yeah, I mean, we've freaking known each other quite a while. 
Alan was the DJ at my wedding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Played music at your wedding, and you were at my wedding, so yep. that was cool from what I remember. Yep. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, that was cool. Yeah, that was the first time I ever did a keg stand, actually, at oh. your wedding. Yeah, that was a... My wife encouraged it because she was pregnant at the time. And oh, she's yeah? like, yeah, you better do this while you still can. While you still can. And then, yeah, that did not go. I don't know what you got. It was like a doubler, and you guys had cider, like some kind of hard cider and Alaskan amber or I something like that. I don't remember. Stuff, yeah. that should not, <laughs> stuff that's not conducive to doing that. But, uh, yeah, I realized stuff was not going the way it was supposed to pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I started realizing that as I was walking down to do my ceremony, you know, my... I think my my uh, father in law to be at the that very moment had to come and you know take the, <laughs> take take the bottle out of the hand. But no, it was it was a good time. Oh, it was. It was definitely not a traditional wedding. I would say it was more of a. It was definitely an Alaskan rowdy kind wedding. of wedding. Yeah. But it was a good it was a good time though. I wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's been uh, yeah time time sure flies and uh, man, I don't even know. Where the heck I get? Yeah, you should like give some background because you you were born and raised up here. Like your grandpa was a an outfitter up here for a long time, wasn't he? And you yeah. pretty much you pretty much down from Healy, Nina. Yeah, so uh, I guess uh, yeah, born and raised here. I was born here in Fairbanks, and uh, my family members uh, moved up here in the early '60s kind yeah. of era. My uncle was one of the first guys to run uh, the radar station out there at Clear. Oh, cool. And uh, my grandfather, uh, he had he had come up here to work at Clear as well. He was a boiler man in the Navy, and, uh, you know, he got a job offer up here, and he moved up here. And the two of them ended up meeting, not related at the time, you know, yeah. in any sort of way. Um. And hanging out, getting to know each other. And there was another guy that was there, a local guy in the area, by the name of Wally Rochester. And uh, there's actually, I've read about him in a few different books and stuff from some different guys. And kind of funny, they his nickname was Walkaway Wally. Yeah. You know, from, from being in so many airplane wrecks and things yeah. over the years, you know. And he, he sounds like he was kind of a character. But yeah, he was a he was a guy down in the area, and he was looking for some guys that had some some woods experience and whatnot to go out with him. And somehow he connected with my grandfather and my uncle, and that kind of started a big long series of years of those guys guiding. They uh, my uncle was involved with um, guiding polar bears up on the slope. Yeah. You know, they were flying up at a Kotzebue area, I think, at the time until the year it was shut down, unfortunately. And uh, my granddad was uh, involved with a lot of the moose hunts that they did, um, bear hunts, they did sheep hunts, um, but primarily their focus was was moose, you know, out in the Tanana Flats. And at the time, this is, you know, the era before even three-wheelers were around. Yeah. And... Uh, so while he had the cub, you know, he'd fly him in and out and, um, they had these big amphibious track vehicles. They were a Vietnam era vehicle. It was a, it was an M116, um, track vehicle. 
And they would use those to get out into these remote areas that at the time, a lot of people, they just didn't have the equipment. It wasn't even yeah. invented then to get into some of these areas. You know, and these some of these spots weren't even far out in today's standards, but at that era, yeah, you know. Ten total, miles might as well be a hundred sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you know, this, this, the stuff was really inaccessible. And uh, they, uh, they did very well. You know, they... I, I, couldn't tell you how many moose that they were in on. You know, I talked to my grandfather about this recently, actually, actually trying to figure out how many moose that he was actually in on, you know, between guiding and just family and his own personal stuff and everything mm-hmm. else. You know, you know, well over a hundred easily, you know, yeah. maybe even upwards to 200 bulls, you know, they're probably in on. So, you know, years later, here I come, you know, I come along and, uh, I was able to get in kind of on the tail end of that and learn from those old boys. And that's just, I mean, it's really, it's been my life. My life has been um, hunting moose and uh, that's primarily moose has been a big part. But then uh, when I was a young teenager, I started hunting sheep and, uh, you know, I've hunted caribou. I don't know, I've just been involved with it all I yeah. guess you know it's just been a, just to me it's just been a natural part of my life and I've I've really uh enjoyed it all I've had a lot of kind of wild adventures and different things that I've been fortunate enough to be involved with and uh I hope to do it until the day I tip over so heck yeah yeah it's uh yeah pretty pretty incredible some of those old timers like just the stuff they did just it was just a different time like like my grandpa would always go, you know, I guess they'd say, take a bunch of guys and go. And some of them guys just wanted to drink and hang out at camp and he'd Mm -hmm. go shoot everybody's moose and caribou and stuff for them. And then they'd, you know, pack it all back to town. And I think there was a, like a, cause they had a little eight millimeter camera at one point and they, Mm -hmm. my grandma had the videos that they'd record doing various stuff and, Mm You know, one of them like pulling out of camp with all sort of trucks just stacked to the brim with meat and then just left all the heads and antlers and everything sitting yeah. on the side of the road. Um, but yeah, no, that's a, it's definitely, I feel like you understand how well we have it up here. You know, I, cause you've hunted down, in the, down in the lower 48 some too. I mean, I grew up down there, so it was like, I don't know, it was like, it was an educational experience. It wasn't like I thought it would be coming up here, but it's it's also like, you know, you know how, how much better it is in some ways. Yeah, you know, I've done a little bit of hunting down down in the States, and uh, I've went down and done some blacktail hunting uh, with my wife's family down there in uh, southern Oregon, um, and just very limited helping out cousins and stuff there in Minnesota, um, whitetail hunting. I'm actually yeah. ready to go down there and give that a stab, but... Uh, I will say for me, any time that I do travel down to the States, uh, I guess just for me personally, maybe it's just being here my whole life, Yeah, but it, it feels like I'm going to a foreign country. Oh yeah. I, I, it, it doesn't feel, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it, but it, it feels completely different to yeah. me going down there. Yeah. I don't know. I, I joke around with people say it's like Alaska is like almost like living in the United States. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it it, it, is a different world. There's just so much just, it seems like everything is focused around just 
advertising and shopping and like this whole infrastructure to lure people into you know turn left for yeah you know these big billboards and stuff that stuff that we don't have up here you know and i guess it's just it's just different to me because i guess i'm i'm not from uh down in those areas and it's just different for me i guess yeah but yeah no when did uh you said you when you was a teenager when you started hunting sheep too yeah so um i'd actually i for some reason had kind of got this interest in it a little bit and uh even though my grandfather my uncle them had had guided sheep um sheep hunting wasn't their specialty by any means yeah and i'd heard a few stories through them and i think i i ended up putting in for uh um, drawings that year i think i was 13 or 14 years old and uh i got that delta controlled use area permit first time i ever put in for it and my cousin and I had made this deal. Okay, we'll each put in for it. And if one of us gets it, we'll go with the other ones. Mm-hmm. Well, I get it. And then, you know, he bails on me. And I don't even have a driver's license. I'm too young. I don't even have a permit. <laughs> so I really had no way of even getting there. And uh, I was kind of bummed out. And my granddad's like, well, you know, there's this area, you know, we used to take clients up into. And he tells me where it's at. So, you know, my cousin, another cousin of mine, and me, we decided we're going to go check this out and see what it's all about. So we took off and we're 13 and 15 or something yeah. like that, you know. And I mean, I used to do that all the time when I was a, you know, I was a kid. I would just leave and be gone for a week. Just tell mom, hey, you know, I'm taking off, going out to the cabin or whatever. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, just kind of give me a rough date when you're going to be back and when I should come, you know, looking for you. Send somebody yeah. to go looking for you. But we took off and uh, no idea what we're doing. You know, we just kind of re- you read the regulation books and, okay, full curl, you know, well, what the heck's that, yeah. you know, but. And it was pretty ambiguous, like, they they used to just only have, like, the one picture. Oh, yeah. It was, like, an illustration in the book that I've, like, seen maybe three or four rams that look like that oh, yeah. entire, in 20 yeah. years of doing it. And, 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 of course, you know, it's completely different sitting and looking at this picture you know, on the piece of paper and being out in the field when mm-hmm. they're live and they're moving and you got, you know, all these different factors coming into play trying to judge them. But yeah, anyway, we, uh, we took off and we went out there and sure enough, we found this group of rams and we sat there and looked at them. And then after some time we realized we don't know how to tell if one's legal or yeah. not. So we ended up sitting there and kind of given our our best look and you know our equipment and stuff at the time was definitely not where i'm at now with the equipment i can remember having uh this big huge burner with you know the big yeah, pullman the propane green, yeah. yeah and uh oh shit what else did i have did I they even remember. have like were they even selling mountain house in town back then? Cause I remember the first time I went, I didn't have any mountain house. Like you had to, it was like no. pasta dinners that you had to like actually cook. I think we had like a big bag of bear Creek chili. Yeah. Some pilot bread crackers, you know, just, just randomness. Yeah. Just kind of whatever. And Shit that a 13 or 14 year old kid throw together. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, some, some old shitty tent we had and just kind of whatever, you know, we never had a lot of money or anything like that. Yeah. So a lot of the gear we had was like hand me down stuff. I, I do remember the pack that I was wearing at the time. My dad, uh, he used to smoke 
a lot of Marlboro cigarettes and yeah. used to save those little, um, there's like a little emblem on the side or something like that that you could cut out yeah and you'd send these things in once you had so many of them yeah you know and they would give you like a prize or whatever so my dad gets this pack and it's like this big red internal frame pack with um team marlboro on the back you know (laughs) so i got this marlboro cigarette backpack on and you know a bunch of randomness and and shit and i remember i think uh we had a spotting scope but it was you know it was very it wasn't the Swaro, I'll just put it that way. Yeah. I think it was some old Bushnell or, or something like that. I don't even remember if it, you know, I think it might have even been a fixed um, magnification still at the time. But, yeah, you know, we didn't know what we were doing, and we were up there, and we were out there for a few days, and we realized, you know, we don't know what we're doing, and we're not going to be able to judge one to tell if it's actually legal because we didn't know enough about it. And uh, and we left, and... uh the next year I was pretty bound and determined that I wanted to go back and I was going to learn more. So I think by this time I'm 14 and, uh, there was a, another old timer that lived in the town close to us. My uh, granddad knew, and he was an old sheep hunter. He'd been, Mm -hmm. been around it for a long time. And he said, Hey, you should talk to this guy. You know, maybe you can convince him to go with you. And, uh, and that's what I ended up doing. I, I went, I met this guy Never met him in my life, you know, and go over or was call. It I think it, no, it no. wasn't. Uh, it was another old boy from uh, from Anderson, actually. Uh, Ray Phillips was his name, and uh, I call him on the phone. I've never talked to him <laughs> in my life, and you know, I say, "Hey, you know, I'm Myron Stokes' grandson, and uh, you know, I'm trying to get into sheep hunting, and I heard that, you know, you're the guy I talked to," and he says. Your granddad put you up to this, didn't he? I was like, yeah, he did. You know, and I go over to his place. He invites me over, and he's got, I don't know how many rams he had there. I remember he didn't have, I don't think any of them mounted. They were just cut off of the skull, and he just had this big cage just full of you know, sheep horns. And he starts showing me gear that he's using, and he's got this little tiny burner and you know, he's he's actually got a nicer spotting scope with a tripod, you yeah. know, and stuff like that. And I'm looking at all the stuff like, wow, you know, I didn't even know this stuff existed. Yeah. You know, because we didn't have stores or nothing like that, that when I grew up that had that kind of stuff, you know, you'd see that kind of stuff like in a Cabela's catalog yeah. that came in the mail. When you didn't have the internet, you know. No, you didn't have, yeah, you didn't have none of that. There was, no, none of yeah. that stuff. Anything that I knew about gear that I thought was, you know, elite at the time would be something that I might've seen in a Cabela's magazine. Mm -hmm. You know, everything else was just hand me down stuff, you know, value village going there, you get surplus, like, you know, camo army pants. And that was cool because it was camouflage, you know, whatever, not just the regular blue jeans or whatever. But yeah, the old boy, he, uh, he came with me. I took another buddy of mine and, and we went up and we found this same group of Rams that we'd found the year before. And, you know, he pretty much did all the work. He he judged it and everything. I was just like the grunt and the the guy that was going to pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. And uh, he picked one out for me, and we looked it over, and uh, I shot it, and I got the thing. And, and uh, yeah, I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot of things that I never would have learned on my own, or if I had, it would have taken me many years to develop that you know yeah 
And I think that's what's so great about going with somebody like that that has all that experience behind them because you can learn things from them that, like I said, it would take you many, many years to learn on your own. So I was very fortunate, I felt like, to go with a guy like that that had so much experience sheep hunting. And that kind of started to open things up for me there for my my own sheep hunting. Yeah, it's crazy to think, you know, because you, you, when you're in the field with guys like that, it's, it's like every, there's a reason for everything they oh, do yes, yes. and a reason why they do it the way they do mm-hmm. it. And yeah, it's, it's stuff like if you aren't paying attention, you might not, you might not notice, but man, you can learn so much. Yeah. Yeah. I remember he had this little, uh, he always carried a little radio with him. Yeah. It's not like you were going to pull up the, the Garmin and check the weather yep, or yep. something. We didn't have that then. So, um, he always carried this little radio and every night that was, that was a ritual. What was the weather going to be like the next day? You know, what were we preparing ourselves for? Mm-hmm. And, and I never even thought about that before. Cause I was yeah. just go out and it's like, just go hunting. Yeah. Doesn't it's going to be what it is. <laughs> it is going to be what it is. You know? Yeah. I, why prepare for it? Just you're in it, go do it, you know, kind of deal. But yeah, he had that little radio and he'd tune in every night and uh, check the weather for the next day, and you know, he give it kind of give us the rundown. This is what we're going to do tomorrow, and yeah. s- start come up with the strategy and a plan. And before that, it was always just, yeah, just go do it, and you kind of wing the thing. And yeah, um, but yeah. Soon after that is when uh, you mentioned Jingles. Uh, yeah, I met uh, my old buddy Jingles there, and, and which uh, I need to, need to try again, circle back and try to get him on here if he, yeah, if he's, he's willing to talk about. It. He's got a lot of good stories. Yeah, he's. You know, he's a, he's a character and he, uh, he officiated your wedding. He did. (laughs) Yes. Yep. Yeah. He, uh, I was, I used to cut firewood to, and sell for cords to, uh, to make money and stuff. And so I was up helping cut firewood up in the hills there. And this old boy comes rolling up on this old tundra, tundra two, you know, and he's got, he's got a fox draped over the back and a bunch of snares in this thing and who the heck's this guy you know and he he comes up and talks to us and we were cutting real wood real like right by his house and we get to talk in and he's asking me some questions about you know snaring these fox and i'm like well you know i've, you know, I've d- done that before and oh really he said well why don't you come in and talk to me okay you know so go trotting down to his place there and he opens the door and I walked inside and I just instantly just blown away because his entire house, I mean, literally it felt like every square inch of his house was mounts, furs, I mean, full blown, um, full mount stone sheep on both sides of his TV Jeez. and, uh, you know, uh, big horn rams, um, huge elk, just Every he had like every subspecies of caribou mounted in there, and I was just like, "Who the heck is yeah. this guy?" You know, <laughs> like, yeah, literally like in a spot you probably driven by a hundred oh, yeah. total randomness <laughs> spot, you know. And and up to that point, you know, for me and my family, you know, horns were always just whatever. You know, you just take the horn and go throw it out in this big pile out in the yard. Yeah. And the dogs are chewing on these things and dragging these moose or bear skulls or whatever it is off in the woods and crunching them and just like, whatever. Yeah. You know, you don't think about that. And that was the first time I'd ever been in anybody's place where they actually had mounts like mm-hmm. that, you know. And so I get to talking to him. And, it, of course, instantly I'm, 
I'm asking him questions about sheep hunting because obviously this guy's been yeah. around the block <laughs> and he's got like two grand slams. So, you know, I'm, I'm asking him questions and, and from there, you know, we had this kind of mutual friendship between us and, um, I ended up taking him sheep hunting, I think that same year, maybe the next year, whatever it was. And we went back to our, our old spot that we had got my, my first one from before. And, uh, we were actually able to take two Rams together that year. So I was like my first double up experience on two Rams and, and, uh, yeah, he, uh, he taught me a a lot about sheep hunting and and then it just kind of, you know, just kept progressing from there. I remember for some reason it sticks in my head. I remember you saying he would, he was telling you about like climbing a hill, taking small steps. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He got on me, you know, why are you moving so fast? You know, cause I young and trying to rush up the hill, you know, I was trying to rush and be as fast as I can. So I'm huffing and puffing and trying to just go as fast as I can. And he's, he's, he says, if you're, if your uh, heel goes past your toes, you're going too fast. <laughs> he said, baby steps. He said, you're never in any rush and there's no hurry. And uh, I still kept hurrying, but now I'm starting to kind of feel like, see what he was talking oh, about. Oh yeah, I, me too. <laughs> I, I, I slow, I'm a lot slower now and I'm in no hurry and I take my time and I just, yeah, there's no rush of just bolting into the mountains as at a hundred miles an hour, because chances are, if you're just focused on getting somewhere and you're rushing, you're probably going to overlook something. Oh yeah, the way. guaranteed. So taking your time and being uh, methodical about it, I think, is more important than just being as fast as you possibly yeah. can. You know, and it and it, I don't know, lets you helps your longevity too. You know, yeah, you can keep you can keep going a lot longer. I mean, I just, I just use that as my excuse to stay out of shape. Yeah, <laughs> but. Yeah. But it, it, there's some truth to it for sure. But yeah, sheep hunting, I love it. You know, it's been a huge, it's been a huge thing to me. I, yeah, I, I well, another one I remember because you guys stopped by. I don't know if I had did I lend Jesse some gear or something because when oh, he when he drew Delta. Yep. Yeah, I remember <laughs> that. Uh, a buddy of mine actually, Jingles had given me this his old spotting scope oh, that he right. had taken on like multiple of these you know these big hunts through the yukon and all the stuff for stone sheep and stuff and he says oh here take my spotting scope you know this this did this many sheep and stuff well it was one of those old fixed powered bush nails yep. so if you wanted to change the magnification you had to unscrew the the, the eyepiece the oh. eyepiece off of it and then you took another eyepiece and you screwed that on i i can't even remember the the magnification now that it was but uh yeah, another buddy of mine had uh, asked to borrow it and then took off with it and left and, and oh. put it in his bag and went down to the States with it. So I was oh. like, without my little trusty, you know, little bush now. Yep. And I was like, man, scrambling around for a, uh, for a spawning scope. I think that's what we ended up getting. Yeah. Spawning scope from you, a big tank of a thing. Well, if yeah. I remember right. Yeah, yeah, it was that. Uh, <clears throat> well, that one was part of my own progression because I started the first time I went. I borrowed my uncle Jerry's like 40 year old, like Redfield spotter. And mm-hmm. it did like, you know, variable magnification, mm-hmm. no tripod, mm-hmm. nothing. Cause we, you know, I'd seen, I'd seen like the Bart Lancaster cheap hunting video oh, where yep. they got their spot and scope sitting on the cowboy hat. Oh yeah. Know? Yep. So with the next year I bought my own, it was like, you know, 
which is obviously a high priority is having waterproof, but I'm like, that was my only, if I could, whatever spots go to scope, I could afford the next year that was waterproof. I bought, it was like some no brand one from mm-hmm. Cabela's. Cause I was the same way growing up, like didn't have internet forums or mm-hmm. big, like specialty stores. It was mm-hmm. like, what's in Cabela's and yep. like, that's the hottest shit right there. Yep. And I, or, you know, when I, my first year is I'm like chipping away, you know, I need a ring gear and a backpack. And like, I just like saved up and scrounged that shit from Cabela's. A lot of it, some, a lot of that stuff I still have to this day, but, uh, yeah, the next year was like a Trekker 60 power spot and scope Mm -hmm. that, uh, just awful. (laughs) And it it came with a little, like, (laughs) it was like, you know, about a 12 inch tall tripod that was like, it wasn't the legs were just uh bended sheet metal basically. Yeah. I think and I probably had one of the the same. Yeah. The little like the little black ones I yep. think like that. I think they had they were like a yep. little pan handle on yep. it or something no, like that. That's exactly it. And uh so after I used that for a year and then the next year I saved up a lot of money and got uh, that this like behemoth spot and scope mm-hmm. it was what was it? It was like Vanguard or something, but it was like $500 scope and mm-hmm. like 80 millimeter beast. And yeah. it was better. It was better, you mm-hmm. know, but, it, and that, yeah, that's the one I gave you, but it was, it was heavy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I remember the year I bought my Swarovski scope and taking that out for the first time sheep hunting. And I realized instantly the quality of optics that you have out in the field, especially sheep hunting, is a make or break. Yeah, it saves you so much walking. Yeah, and uh, one of the things I noticed, too, is just the clarity of it. You know, you're really able to, especially at closer range, really see those finer, fine details mm-hmm. of their horns, uh, Like if especially if you're trying to age them yeah, and you're trying to see the rings on them and stuff like that. Um, that extra bit of clarity is, is a make or break. Oh yeah. You know, as far as I'm concerned anyway, and it's actually enabled us to take Rams. We probably would have passed on, mm-hmm. you know, if we didn't have that quality of optics, you know, on yeah. the field. So. No, it's a big, it's a big difference and just how easy they are to look through, you know? Yes. You know, even especially binos, you know, like mm-hmm. you get used to using, using high-end binos and you swap to like, you know, what I maybe $200 pair or $300 pair of binos that mm-hmm. I first started using, like it, it'll scramble your brain pretty good, yeah. man. It starts like hurting to look, to look through them. Yeah. But yeah, no, that was funny. I was trying, yeah, I was trying to remember what, cause I remembered you talking about how all oh, Jesse having a hard time on the hike out. He was young, but he was only like 15 or something. Yeah. I don't even remember if he was that old. And having, and having, uh, knowing where you guys came from, I've done, hiked out from that similar, that same area. And that's not, it's not, it's a long, long push, man. Yeah. I think when we were in actually, cause I think, yeah, um, I think we were in, about 25 miles to the point yeah. where he actually shot his ram. And it was real close to an area I had taken one out of there before, mm-hmm. which is the reason we went back to that same kind of spot. But it, yeah, for him being a young kid, that was a, that 
that was a long haul for him. No, you know, I and, mean that, <laughs> and it's and it's a long it's a long haul for anybody. I mean that shit's pretty rugged. And yeah. I think back to when I was a kid, like what you what you think's hard when you're a kid, mm-hmm. you know that that can change <laughs> that can change over the years. And yeah, oh man, pretty intimidating. Yeah, I might have died at fourteen trying to <laughs> trying to do that. Yeah. He got his sheep, though. He did you know, get his was, sheep. It was, was a nice one, yeah. I was pretty proud of him, you know, being able to be there with, with my younger brother on his first ram like that. It was it was pretty awesome. I was kind of sitting there beside him. I actually got a, a, a very small video that I just found recently of that whole thing. And oh, kind of nice. was able to put it together and go back in time, you know. Nice. Many years, it seems like now, and look at that and be like, wow, you know, look at that. Look how young young you looked you know yeah. teasing him and stuff you know but i mean he did, he did a great job and and yeah we we got out of there with it but he, yeah he was he was hurting i yeah. think i think part of the problem was uh i think he was just wearing hip waders the entire time Ooh, uh, I, I don't think he even had hiking boots so yeah by the time we got back his feet were just raw you know just oh, all yeah. blistered up and and everything else so i think he could like barely walk by the time we hit the road he was like about in tears you know and so what's the matter you you know we made it he's like i thought we were gonna die out there you know <laughs> but oh man yeah I, I can remember the last time with my buddy frank coming out of there like midnight eleven thirty, just scraping the bottom of the barrel yeah and uh yeah, it was to the point where you couldn't sit down. You couldn't didn't want to sit down because oh, yeah. you wouldn't be able to get back up. And yep. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. You know, ment- uh, sheep hunting is definitely a mental game. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you can be in the best shape of your life, but at some point it's it's never enough, and you have to mentally tell yourself just to keep on going. Yep, it's going to suck no matter what. <laughs> yeah, embrace the suck. Yeah, and just I don't take know. It in. Sometimes I don't know what's worse, like, because there's the stress factor, mm-hmm. like the mind game yep. of, like, what, am I making the right decisions? What am I, you know, mm-hmm. the whole everything involved before you actually shoot one. Yeah. And then, like, when it's time to throw them in the backpack and start marching home, mm-hmm. you know. The stress level is is yeah. a lot lower typically, but man, it's a it's a grind. Yeah, I think honestly, the worst one for me was the last ram that I actually got, which was I did not get one this year. We me had either. a hell of a just nasty weather oh. this year. I mean, I think everybody seemed to experience that, but but last year we were uh, we had went into an area I was really had my mind set on I wanted to find a, a big ram. Yeah. And uh we I think partially underestimated uh what we were getting ourselves into that year. And also I had never hunted on glaciers much. You yeah. know, growing up in the interior it's just not here, you know, I've, but I've done the brooks now and, you know, Talkeetnas and been around pretty much most of the ranges in the state sheep hunting, but we had uh Spent some time in the Southern Wrangles that year um, looking for a big ram. And uh, we really pushed ourselves hard to keep going. And we just could not find what we were looking for. So you just pass things up and you keep going and going and going. And uh, I think we were multiple weeks in. We were both getting pretty whooped. And uh, 
our heads were starting to hang low because we, I think we realized, you know, we're, we're, we're probably not going to come out of here with one this year, yeah. you know, and, and we were actually on our way out and, uh, we stopped at the base of, uh, this glacier and we were sitting there setting up tan- uh, camp for the night and I looked across the way and, uh, I seen two rams feeding up in this small valley and I just instantly just looking at the one. I could tell from that distance, you know, how he carried his mass and mm-hmm. you know how it is when you're seeing him from far away like that. And if you can see that cut through the neck or, yeah. you know, as they're kind of turning, you get that little glimpse and you're watching them. Like sometimes you're like almost trying to convince yourself it's a ram, you know, yeah, like, yeah. but, but it was, you know, it's pretty obvious. And well, and then I tell, I tell like, I don't know, we talk, I could mention it quite a bit from a long ways away. Like I, I don't know about you. I look at how much mass they have at the three-quarter curl mark. Because, yes. you know, you look at enough, like, full curl rams or mature big mature rams, mm-hmm. you get an idea for proportionally, yes. like, how much. Like, if it's looking super thin out down there, they're mm-hmm. probably not going to be what you're looking for. Yeah, if they don't carry that mass around, you know, they're they're not going to be, they're not going to be big and mature, I guess. But, yeah, we, uh, we, uh, broke all of our rules every year i seem to make mistakes and i'm yeah you know i come up with this new set of rules every year and i'm like all right i'll never do that again you know this new rule for this next season you know never do this again and of course i get fixated on this sheep and it's a long ways away we're really tired and we're calling the the person that we had flying for us and saying hey you know we're going to need a few more days we're supposed to get picked up you know push our push our flight out and uh, so it's my my brother-in-law and I, and we take off across the glacier. And that was our the first thing we underestimated was how long it actually takes to get across the moraine like that. Yeah, you, know, you got it's a it's a maze going well, through that stuff. Yeah, well, and, and yeah, talk about that a little bit because I I haven't done a lot of glacier hunting. I killed like one big mountain goat on a glacier, but didn't like travel it extensively. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're like way up and away or you're sitting there looking, you're like, Oh yeah. It's like walking across a potato field or something. Yeah. It's just like flat, but it's, it's not flat. There's no. lots of scary holes. Yes. And <laughs> yeah. You know, I, and I brought uh, crampons that you're yeah. expecting, um, to hit ice and you look at that moraine and you see the, what looks just like these big gravel dunes or whatever. Mm-hmm. But really, it's only about a half an inch to an inch of gravel, and it's sheer ice underneath that. So you're yeah. trying to climb up these hills, and you're just constantly slipping. You know, that was the first year I had ever used a uh, an ice axe as yeah. well, and I carried that along with my trekking pole. And thank God I had that, because there were some spots we got ourselves into that I don't know if we would have got ourselves out if we didn't have that with. We yeah. were actually able to, you know, to chip in, and you pull yourself up the size of these things. As we're making our way across, you know, trying to... yeah. But, you know, when we originally looked at this thing, you know, we're picking up on the GPS, you know, and we're looking at distance and we're talking it over and, oh, we'll be back before nightfall. No problem. We'll get over there. We'll get up there and we'll have him. You know, we'll be back. Let's just leave all of our gear here. You know, <laughs> sleeping bag stand, you know, we're going to go as light as possible. We're we're going for it. So uh, that was the plan. And that was our, you know, one of our first mistakes as well, I guess, is breaking that rule of, you know, Anytime I leave camp, I always bring my sleeping bag because yeah. I have totally froze my balls completely off on the side of the mountain. Plenty of times when I was younger, I know better. 
but there again, I, you know, I, I break my rule and off we go. No sleeping bags, just the little, uh, the Kafaru, uh, sheep tarp or whatever we had for, uh, for a tarp. I always bring that, but yeah, it takes us forever to get across the moraine and we're going up and we're going through this, this jungle of a, of a hill. And then we hit a big wall, a big sheer wall that we couldn't see from below. So we got to you know, figure our way out around this and time is clicking and time is clicking. Yep. Well, eventually as we get up towards where we can finally see these rams, uh, I realized if this happens tonight, we're not getting off this mountain and, and we're in for a long one. Yeah. And, uh, it was, he was in an area where we were totally exposed. So my brother-in-law stayed behind to keep an eye on him. And there was, it was a, almost a hail Mary. I had the wind in my favor, but they had the advantage mm-hmm. of, of seeing us. So it was a very slow, long stock of, you know, looking up with the binoculars and waiting for both rams to feed where they were faced away yep. and move a short distance and then pick them out again and make sure they're still looked away from you and just inching my way in towards these things. I think I closed in from 800 yards or something until finally I came up over the ridge on them and I was within 50 yards of them. And uh, I ended up, I shot this ram took time for my brother-in-law to get there you know by the time we finally meet up it is late into the evening and snow is starting to come down and we instantly realize you know there's no way in hell we're getting off this mountain so we better just tuck her in for it yeah so we got this ram quick and you know it was a long uh cuddled up night yeah. <laughs> on the side of the mountain you know and we will I, there was no sleep. I mean, no. it is what it is. You're, you're you're up shivering all night, just doing anything you can to, you know, try to keep from getting hypothermia because it's just right on the verge of it. And we got the little sheep tarp off up above us, and we're pushing the snow off of it, and we're just huddled up under this thing, you know, just no, trying to. We are fucked. <laughs> yeah, just trying to survive the night, you know, and get to that first little bit of light in the mm-hmm. morning, and. uh but that whole thing, I think just the whole experience of the whole trip and everything, I mean, it took everything I had inside me when I was down to that last hundred yards to come up over this little crest where they'd be within that final 50 Yeah, to keep myself going. And I just was so physically beat. I think that was the worst I'd ever had it. Man. And uh, the Ram ended up being, you know, a, a nice Ram. He was just shy of, of 41 but his body was just immense. And that's yeah. what I noticed right off the get go. When I first had walked up to him was how big he was. And, uh, you know, we've packed a number of rams out where, um, we're each using a stone glacier pack. Now they yeah. have that little meat bag that mm-hmm. they, they sell. And it seems like, you know, one ram will fill one of those bags up pretty good. And this thing actually filled up both of our bags almost completely. And, Jeez. uh, it, I just couldn't believe the body size of this thing. That was the biggest ram I'd ever seen. So then, you know, there's all this added extra weight, you know, and we're trying to navigate our way back down through this jungle and all this bullshit and everything else. And yeah, by the time I finally got back to the tent, I was just 100% physically done. I just, I had never been that tired on any sheep hunt in my life. And, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what it was about it. Maybe I just wasn't in 
my normal shape from well, going in the season but that it's, year. It's or, a cumulative. It's cumulative. You know, like yeah. you. I think you're probably in plenty of good shape because you get in shape pretty fast. But you know, you're burning way more calories than you're eating, mm-hmm. and like the mental like drag of it. And, oh yeah, and then. You know, just that huge push, and then you don't get any sleep. Your body's trying yep. to just like stay alive. <laughs> yeah. No, that does. Yeah, that's makes total sense to me. But but that's always seems to what it it comes down to at some point in the hunt where you know, I guess no matter how much you work out beforehand or whatever you do, there's there's a point where you just have to mentally switch it on and keep going because, yeah. and it's not like you're just going to sit down in the mountain and just yeah uh, oh. I give up. You yeah, know, you don't you, have the option. Do? Yeah, you don't have the option. So you just have to mentally switch that that on in your mind to just keep going. You know, and you just even if it's slowly, you just keep pushing it until you you make it out. And then I think that's what part of what makes sheep hunting just so just what it is. You know, the that mental oh, game yeah. of get, of getting through it. Yeah. It's awesome, though. As I've discovered, it's what makes moose hunting that much sweeter, too. Yeah. <laughs> when you got a comfortable comfortable camp and everything. Yeah, moose hunting's definitely, it seems, a lot more a lot more chill, you know, yeah. than sheep hunting. But it's, it comes with its own its own set of challenges, but yeah, it sure does. you take it on. Yeah, which, um, when did you, it was, a, it was several years ago you started flying, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. I, it was after college, I think, or you're yeah. right towards the end of college. You were, I, so been, my, yeah. yeah. So my brother had got his license. They had a pretty cool, uh, it was a high school program. wasn't Yeah. It? Pretty cool program. And unfortunately for me, I'd already graduated by that yeah. point, you know, but my brother was able to get his license while he was still in high school, his pilot's license. And, uh, my grandfather, um, you know, being a big influence on us growing up, he's always saying, you know, you guys, you boys need to get your pilot's license. He had uh, spent a lot of time in the Cub with his friends and whatnot. He said that was always one of his biggest regrets being up here was not getting his pilot's license. So it was always a dream of mine. And um, I started working on my license. My brother and I had actually went in together on a, a small tailor craft mm-hmm. and then, uh, yeah, it was a lot of obstacles actually to kind of overcome to, to get my license and living where I do, you know, you have to have an instructor to go with. Yep. And, uh, so we kept the plane up in Fairbanks and then I had to find an instructor that would actually work with me in a tail dragger because, yeah. uh, it seems like a, a bunch of the instructors up here in the area, they won't have nothing to do with it. You know, hmm. there's a, uh. Um, just the tail dragger in general has a has more of a tendency to ground loop the plane and whatnot. Just yeah, how, which is spinning around. Yep, and they're just, a little more. From what I what I understand, they're are they a little more squirrely when you yep, land and you more gotta, squirrely and, and you know you really just got to be on the rudders and yeah. uh, so driving back and forth for me uh, at the time from down in that area all the way to Fairbanks and I was, you know, working full time down there and I'd be yep. get, like getting off of night shift uh, for 12, 13 hours, whatever, drive all the way to Fairbanks, hop in the plane, go do a quick lesson, you know, be partial way back and stop and side the road somewhere and catch a shut Sleep. eye for just oh. a little bit and then just, and keep going to get to, uh, to get to work that same, you know, night to, to do it all over again kind of deal. So it was very difficult to kind of, 
just the logistics of and the time yeah. it took. All the lessons and accumulating like your hours and stuff, I imagine oh, yeah. that was tough. Yeah, and then uh, the other thing was winter. Um, Three hours of daylight. <laughs> yeah, winter, and then uh, winter flying has its its own set of difficulties as well. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole different you know set of things that you need to do to take care of your aircraft in yeah. the winter time versus the summertime. So you got like, what are some of those? Because like, I mean, I know some of the differences. Like you know, like the plane will perform differently. Like mm-hmm. in some ways, you know, the air is a lot more dense when it's super yeah. cold. So you can, ha- you can sometimes do things that you can't do in, in warmer weather. But anyway, yeah. you're, you're the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, taking care of the plane in the winter, you have wing covers and everything. Cause you, you want to keep the ice, of course, mm-hmm. off the wings. It, it disturbs how the air flows over the wings you know, and it, it could cause you to crash if you had enough um, ice built up on the wings. I think the FAA says has pretty much a zero tolerance. You're not supposed to fly with any sort of ice built up on them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the reality is guys do. They they will fly with a, a small amount on, um, but you definitely don't want to let, allow, you know, a bunch of snow and ice and everything to build up on your wings because – it's not like there's a hanger everywhere that you can just pull well, the thing into. And it's like not like you can just pull up to out. the de-icer, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, that's a challenge. You also, you have, you're preheating the engine and making sure it's warm and up to temperature before you can even start the thing. So you're looking at, you know, four hours or plus, depending on what you're using to kind of preheat the engine and get it ready to go. Um, when you're getting, going into winter, uh, for me, you're swapping from wheels to skis so then you know that there's that whole thing taking a little bit of time it doesn't take too long to to swap them out anymore we got it figured out but uh i don't know there's just this whole different set of like Mm -hmm. chores that are involved with winter flying versus just going down doing your pre-flight quick you know and untying the thing and taking off in the summertime you know it's like many many hours invested in just preparing to go flying yeah. And then you co- you go out and you fly and you do your thing or whatever and you come back and then you also have all these chores of putting the thing to bed, you know, for the mm-hmm. night, tying it down, putting all the wing covers back on and everything else and they can be a big frozen block or whatever, yeah. you know, and and uh especially when you're by yourself and you're trying to put one of these wing covers on, it's windy out, and yeah. this thing's blowing all over the damn place and you're you're kind of fighting the thing to get it back on. Yeah. You know, it can be be a little bit of a struggle at times, but, uh, but no, it's, uh, it's been really awesome. You know, I'm, I don't claim to be some sort of fantastic, you know, all knowing experienced bush pilot by any means, because I am, I'm not, you know, I'm not there. And, uh, but fortunately for me, again, I've been able to meet people that are, or or that I looked up, up to as, and, uh, they've been able to pass on their many, many years of knowledge to me. Yeah. And I've been able to start, uh, you know, developing off airport skills and, and, you know, gravel bars and, mm-hmm. and doing these, you know, these big trips. And, um, I've spent all last winter flying, uh, you know, out to remote lakes and things, pike fishing yeah. and, and just, just developing off airport skills. Cause I, I had no intention when I got my pilot's license to fly airport to airport. That's yeah. not at all. That's not why you got it. <laughs> that is not at all why I worked towards my pilot's license. And it was strictly because 
I wanted to see a part of Alaska that I only ever got to see on a map before, mm-hmm. you know, and it's really just open doors for me tremendously. Well, and, provides uh, a whole like another degree of freedom, you know, it's oh. like, you know, if you're up here and you don't have anything, that's one thing. And yeah. then if you can get a four wheeler that opens up mm-hmm. a little bit more country, yeah. you get a boat that opens up a totally different, that's mm-hmm. like, you know, another level of yep. access that you have and freedom and then, you know, and airplanes even, even, even oh, more. Yeah. And, you know, one thing for me, I noticed, uh, I guess kind of early on with it was that it totally changes your perspective on things. When you see things from the air and you just see the ground, I don't know how to describe this, the mountains and just everything in the whole layout, like you beforehand, I guess I would look at things and think, oh, this is a great distance. This is a big deal. You know, like driving from from up here to, to Anchorage, for instance, you know, yeah. you're going through that whole area between Cantwell down to Anchorage and you're thinking, oh, it's a long drive and this is so far and everything. But once you fly it and you see it from this different perspective, you realize it's very small actually. And it's just this tiny little area. And then you start to realize how big Alaska really is. And it is just ginormous. And what is out there is just untouched on, you know, wilderness for farther than I, than I could ever have fathomed before. But it, it just changes my perspective on how I look at the landscape now versus before I started oh, flying. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it wasn't this year, it was last year sitting in a course. Like anytime you're out hunting, planes fly over, you try to <laughs> see mm-hmm. the, which it's shockingly difficult to read in number with uh-huh. binoculars on an airplane flying over. Yeah. But the plane flies over and had service there. So I'm like, let's see who this was. And it, mm-hmm. your name popped up. I was like, <laughs> Al. Yeah. <laughs> So I think yeah, I, I texted you and you got back. I was like, did you just fly over us? And you got back, you texted like, maybe we're. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can't remember what I was doing that day. I was, I'm always out now. I, I love it so much that I'll get off work and just go just burn laps at the airport for practice just because yeah. I want to just develop my skills and for flying, you know, off airport. And, and I just love it. I really do. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's, I mean, and that's, that's kind of what you got to do like that. It does, you know, unless you love it, I don't think it fits. Yeah. You know, it, like it's, people don't, it, it sounds cool. Like everyone, you know, everyone wants a super cub. Yeah. And, but, you know, I, I mean, I know guys who have sold their planes cause they're like, I just don't, I just don't fly enough mm-hmm. to make it worth it. You know, people don't realize like all the, you know, it's the costs and the chores and stuff like that, that, that are involved with it and. Even yeah. stuff like sheep hunting, you know, there's a lot, a lot of times, you know, you also have to walk away from that plane mm-hmm. and leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a whole other bunch of hazards. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's kind of a misconception about planes too. You know, before I started flying and meeting a lot of guys that are really active off airport bush pilots that, you know, are, are big into hunting as well. Mm-hmm. You know, like you'd, you'd be on the ground and it's like you're you're out in the field and you're hunting and you had this big struggle just to get to where you are, you know, thinking you're a long ways out. Yeah. And you're, you're sitting there looking at something and all of a sudden this, you know, this, you see this plane fly by and, you know, there's kind of this tendency to be like, oh, these goddamn pilots, you know, yeah. planes, you know, <laughs> out here, you know, and stuff and, you know, and it, yeah. it's kind of led to, you know, it's led to some regulations being developed here in the state for, for instance, you know, the, the whole sheep hunting thing, flying mm-hmm. and 
spotting sheep during season, you know, which I get and be and beforehand, you know, I was like, you know, oh yeah, definitely that needs to happen. These, these pilots and stuff like that, you know, or whatever else. But, uh, now I, I've come to realize, you know, the reason that guys get airplanes and especially the guys that hunt it is not so they can fly and be right on top of everybody else. Yep. You know, a lot of times, you know, or most of the time, these guys are on their way and they're traveling and they're trying to trying to get as far away trying from to get people. somewhere yeah get, you know if yeah. i wanted to go where everybody else goes i would still be riding my argo you know around straight into the or on on all these trails and whatever else but you know the guys that are really into it they're uh they got an airplane because they want to get away from people yeah so, so i don't think anymore it's like if i see a plane go over it's like i'm not worried about it yeah and, and it's not like it's a helicopter you know, yeah. I mean, I see plenty of, you know, these huge moose and stuff. You see these things from the air and whatnot. It's like, oh, There's wow. nothing you could ever do about it. Yeah, wow, look at that, you know. But the reality is, you know, most of the time you're, you're not just going to set the thing down like it's a helicopter, you know, and just yeah. walk over there and shoot this thing and, you know, right out from underneath the guy and throw it in your plane and helicopter the thing out. You yeah. know, I mean, that's just not the reality of it. So it's funny because I always had these kind of preconceived notions of, of what it was and and what these guys were capable of doing, you know, and it, it's not that at, at yeah. all. You know, and the other part of it, too, is, you know, I've heard uh, I've heard a few guys, you know, down in my area talking about, you know, oh, you know, well, it must be easy, you know, if you got a plane. Oh, it must be so easy, yeah. you know, but, you know, it's not. And I'm not even too a point where I feel like, like I said, I'm, I feel so inexperienced yet Mm -hmm. and it takes years of just dedication and discipline and, you know, everything to develop the techniques, you know, and everything to be able to land on a mountain ridge sheep hunting. Yeah. Everything that comes into play and comes into the factor of being able to actually do something like that. I don't think people realize what it takes to get to that level. Yeah, and it's not, and it's not like in your riverboat. Oh, hey, let's see if we can make it up this channel. Yeah, and if we don't, we get stuck. It's yeah. not the way. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> There's I mean, a lot more at risk. Yeah, and the risk factor is high, and you know, if you make one little slip up, you know, it could it could cost you your life. Yep. So yeah, I've, I've definitely found there's a. Yeah. There, no, it's funny, and, and like you know, like we're. You know, some spots where we, where we've hunted, it's can be some like right in just general traffic areas, you know, and that just comes with it. You know, it doesn't mean that anyone can land on Mm -hmm. top of you really. Um, and, and I think if they could, they would, because, you know, there's, there's stuff (laughs) was business this last year. There was a couple different nights. I think, well, one after, I think it was the night Frank shot his bull. I think you flew, I think, because I remember you saying you were going to be going out and then the next day it said you, but it might have been the night I shot my bull, but like, yeah, a couple times, like get right at prime time and then it's just like plane, plane, circle, you know, which whatever, a guy wants to circle, he can circle, but it, 
you know, yeah. you got to balance like the frustration with like, all right, everybody else is out here too. And yeah. most people, if they, if they know you're there, like they're not going to try to interfere with yeah. you. Yeah. And it, you know, and it's totally a, a completely different thing when there's a guy that's, you know, dive bombing with this plane and just coming right on top of somebody's camp, you know, yeah. just like purposefully, you know, and, you know, being an asshole about yeah. it, you know, that's, that's a totally different thing. And, you know, those guys like, like that, you know, you need to. They need to have a talk to be like, hey, you know, you, you need to be respectful. You know, when I'm out flying and I see somebody's camp, if I see somebody's camp out like that, I'm on my way out or whatever. I try to steer away and yeah. avoid them because because I get it, you know, and I don't want to. They have their own experience they're trying to have, and mm-hmm. I'm not trying to, you know, be on top of them or anything like that. I'm just traveling through or whatever. I try to kind of steer out of the way if I can. So, but uh, yeah, it's. It's it's been awesome. I've I've been able to do some pretty cool trips this last summer. I uh I did uh probably one of the highlights of my life, honestly, this trip I I got to take. It was with another uh pilot, very experienced guy that's kind of taken me under his wing, if you will, and uh you know, has been able to teach me a lot of stuff and uh yeah, we went and flew up through the Brooks Range. We flew the whole Kobuk area, you know, you know, landed on the Kobuk. Mm-hmm. Went fishing there, uh, went to Kobuk Sand Dunes. You know, I never thought I'd get to see yeah. those, you know, and check those out. It was awesome. And I uh, went and flew all around the coast, you know, flew the whole peninsula and everything and uh, did a bunch of beach combing. And, uh, yeah, we, uh, you know, we picked up some walrus along the way and stuff. Nice. You know, you find these washed, washed up walrus that are all bloated up, stinky and, oh, man. and whatever else, <laughs> you know, and, uh you can harvest the tusks off of them. There's, there's rules behind it, you know, and you need to watch where you're at and things like that. You don't, you can't be in, you know, a national park, you know, harvesting these things, but you know, if they're dead, they're washed up on the beach, you're allowed to harvest the ivory off of them. Mm -hmm. You have to take them in and get them sealed at the federal building. I think it's within 30 days of picking them up, but you know, so we were able to do that. And I just, just the whole experience and seeing all this country and being out by whales and, you know, seeing little diamede and all that out there and flying that whole coastal area of Alaska was just unbelievable, you know, and just landing on beaches and gravel bars and everything else. Well, it it really probably helps like connect, like connect it in your mind, in your perception, you know, of like, of being Alaska. And I, I guess I would, I would, the way, I guess it might not make sense what I'm trying to say, but um, like between here and the lower 48, mm-hmm. you get on a plane down there. I come up here like when I'm 16, totally like so. You step on a plane, you get off, and you're in a totally different world. Mm-hmm. But like the first time when I actually drove, then mm-hmm. I start to like connect the dots. Connect the dots if that if that makes yeah. sense. But I I would imagine that like being doing all that flying around the state in your airplane like really like helps connect connect some of those dots i mean even just just traveling out there in general like some of the bush jobs i've had to do like way out Uh in the middle of nowhere um it changes your perspective yeah it it totally does yeah you look at on the map or you, you you pull up google earth or something like that on the computer and you're looking at this stuff and you know, just wondering, you see it on, on a map or something like that, but then once you're actually out there and you're in it and you, you get to experience it all and it, it puts it all together and you're like, yeah. oh, okay, you yeah. know, this is what this is, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I was going to ask you something about moose hunting too, because yeah, you are, 
I'm like a reason. I was always just a town, like a town forky meat bull guy, mm-hmm. and like recently got into actual actual moose camp and yeah. trying to learn. Yep, there's just so much to I, I don't know. There's a lot I have to learn about it, and uh, yeah, what's like what's a, I don't know, moose guys? I always like to ask them what they're like. What's your preferred what's your go-to call and method or do you have one or you kind of change it depending on the situation um yeah as far as calling goes i personally for me i've just never had much luck cow calling yeah and it's funny because i do talk to other guys you know same thing picking brains you know what do you do you know you're you're always trying to figure out different techniques and things that that work for guys and some guys you know tell me Oh, the cow call is the only way to go. You know, you got yeah. a cow call and, but for me, I, I don't know, maybe I just suck at it, Yeah, <laughs> you know, but I've always, uh, it's always worked better for me to, um, use bull calls and, and raking. Um, I always carry a, an actual antler with me. In fact, now I have a, it's a sawed down piece of a caribou antler. Yeah. But I always use that because I don't think that there's anything like the real thing, you know, when it comes to this, yeah. the sound of it. You know, you, I've done everything from, you know, milk jugs and cooler lids and everything else, you know. But I think when it comes down to it, you know, when when you're out there and you hear a bull rake in the brush, um, there's there's a certain sound that it gives off. There's a there's a timbre to it, and having an actual antler. Um, I think is, you know, you get that exact same sound. That reverberation. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> That's a good point. Cause like, yeah, you know, like we've been using a canoe paddle a lot and mm-hmm. I think a lot of that stuff can work sometimes, but you know, like shoot my bull and then you cut the antlers off and pick them and like just gently rake them on a, like a brush or, mm-hmm. you know, a little alder bush or a bur- little birch sapling or yeah. something. And it's like, it has a totally unique mm-hmm sound like do you does it seem like a you like the sound carries pretty well with like how how big of an antler or caribou antler do you carry around because obviously like you know a bigger moose antler takes less yeah but also you got to carry the damn and swing the damn thing around yeah that's the thing and that's what's nice about the caribou is it's you know you got that beam on there yeah you got a nice long handle kind of you can get some leverage with it i uh i find certain things to rake on as well like yeah. i won't just rake on anything a lot of times what i look for is a nice dead tree yeah because it's it's loud you know you can scrape the bark on it and it projects out there a ways um, but also you know you just listening to bulls and trying to mimic them what they do you know you hear them raking on the brush as well yeah um well that bark almost sounds like when they're when they're like raking in a bush like that that yeah. kind of almost like an abrasive the bark does kind of sound like that yeah. on, on like dead yeah spruce trees and i'm uh i'm pretty aggressive about it i yeah. mean I, I don't think that they uh i i'm never quiet i guess when i'm moose hunting yeah. even when i'm walking like i've had stocks that i've been on where i've you know i spotted the bull and i'm walking and he's in some thick something or other but as I'm walking in and I'm, I have that paddle with me, you yeah. know, and I'm raking, I'm not trying to sneak in. I mean, I am, I'm trying to be another bull that's challenging him. So, yeah. you know, another bull is not going to get on his tiptoes and, and sneak in and, yeah. and come sneaking in on him. You know, I mean, he's, he's going to come in to challenge this other bull, 
is how I view it anyway. And then, you know, I've been able to pull bulls out of just some really thick stuff and, uh, you know, and take them, um, from me walking in towards them and just being loud mm-hmm. and raking along the way and, and then stopping and sitting and I'll, I'll take some time to listen, um, and, you know, make some bull grunts and, and whatnot. But yeah, I normally carry that, uh, that caribou antler that I got sawed down. And then I, I like the bull magnet as well. I normally carry one of those just for, for vocalizing. Yeah. For just making grunts. I do think it does help project that sound out their ways and you know and being being patient as well you know just because you make a call doesn't mean that something's going to instantly just pop right out of the brush you know it it might be two miles away and you're trying to bring that bull in from that distance and you know it might take him quite a while i've also had instances where i've been calling late into the evening Mm -hmm. and uh you know you don't see anything, you don't see anything, but you wake up the next morning and hear the bull is like bedded down right in that same spot that you were just calling from the night before, because I feel like it took him so long to get there. Yeah. And then, you know, visually it's dark and you can't see, and then they're hanging out in that area looking for that bull that was calling and then they bed down and you wake up in the morning, they're just sitting right there in the same spot. Yeah. Like, I mean, the one I shot this year, I feel like we probably called him in in the morning and he like got up and moved during the middle of the day because he mm-hmm. in the evening all of a sudden he was just there yeah you know a few hundred yards away mm-hmm. yeah uh another thing i've noticed just about moose in general especially the bulls is you know they love the alders and mm-hmm. you might catch them out in the fields and things like that but i've just noticed you see these strips of alders that, you know, maybe come through a mountain or through a valley or whatever. And that is just a travel corridor for those bulls. And they, they get into those alders and they just use those like highways. And Which you, is crazy because, you know, yeah. you would think as big as they are with big wide antlers that yes. I mean, you can't even hardly walk through them with a backpack. On. Yeah, it, it is unbelievable how they're able to slip around, you know, through these things. But um, a lot of times what I've noticed calling is I will call in an area where there is a, a big group of alders. You know, mm-hmm. I, I generally try to find somewhere where, you know, there might be a big field or, you know, plenty of area where I can see, but I like to have some sort of brush line there because I know that they're going to be traveling through there. And, uh, a lot of times what I've seen is I will call them and they will get right to the edge of the brush line where you can just barely see their antlers mm-hmm. and you're, you have to look, you can't just look at the outside of the brush. You have to, you know, focus your binoculars and look through the brush and you'll see them inside that patch of alders and you'll mm-hmm. see those, you know, the palms sticking up like that. And, but it's, there's a point there that they get to where you have to draw them out of there and yeah. they'll sit there and look at you, but they won't actually step out and expose themselves. And that's, that's been a difficult little thing I've been trying to kind of figure them out on more because I've had this happen a number of times where they get right to the, the edge of the brush. And uh, one of my buddies talking to him about it, you know, he he's a big fan of the shoulder blades. A lot of guys mm-hmm. do that as well. Just yeah. holding up the scapulas like you're decoying them basically. Yep. And, you know, he said, that's the trick. He says, you know, when they get to there, when you get them to there, you know, you pull those up and you know, and imitate another bowl and, and – 
a lot of times you can get them to pull that last little bit. Because yeah. I've got a decoy that's like just a bull, you know, it's a like a Montana, like spring, oh, yeah. spring open decoy that's like a bull's yep. head and antlers. It's like that. I've heard guys using just like white bucket lids. Yep. Too, for that kind of situation. Yep. Yeah, when they get in the rut, they get a little more stupid. You know, yeah. They really do. <laughs> and, you know, I think you could just about use anything. But, yeah, trying to just get that last little visual, I think, mm-hmm. thing for them to see. Like they're they feel, looking for something to confirm that that moose is there. Yeah, and the, to make them feel comfortable where they want to go ahead and step up that last little bit. Because I can't tell you how many times this has happened to me. Yeah. You know, and I'm sitting there with the rifle, and you're looking at them through the brush. You can see the, you know, these palms sticking up, but there's too much brush in the way to make any sort of ethical shot on mm-hmm. them, you know. So, I don't know. It's just... Keep learning. You'll never learn it all. Yeah, you know, no, even that's the truth. Really hunting. Even when you think you, yeah, even when you think you do, or, or sheep hunting, you know, you develop all the rule, all your, you know, it's similar to us, like all the rules and things you don't do, and yep. then you know, there's all occasionally you'll get a curveball, but mm-hmm. I guess if it was if it was predictable all the time, it wouldn't be near as much fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got to keep it interesting, you know. But yeah, moose yeah. hunting, it's awesome. They're. uh they're a big animal. They're a big animal to, to oh, deal yeah. with after the fact. Well, that's another thing. If you're just hunting out or you're hunting out of your airplane, there's a little more packing involved than yeah. You know when you can get a machine to them. Yeah, you yeah you're you got the pack board out and you got to hump them back to the plane if you're if you're going that route. Yeah, uh, I still use my my Argo, so that makes it a bit easier. Oh, yeah. You know, you can slide them right into the back and don't have to. Yeah, pack I'm the slightly. Whole thing. I don't know. I don't know. I'm slightly jealous. Sometimes, like where we're hunting, I'm like, man, if I had Argo out there, there's there's one spot in particular that a couple different times, you know, different times, and I think I think it's just a travel route for these big bulls mm-hmm. that I've seen. Just you know, the biggest bulls I've seen have been going between these two spots, but there's mm-hmm. just no feasible way you run into too much water for the four wheeler, yeah. and it's just not. It's like too much water for a four wheeler, but it's and it's not like you could float a canoe yeah. out to get there to hunt them either, you know. So, but at the same time, it's 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 just it's well within callable range yeah. of where where we just like kind of set up and got our tower, mm-hmm. you know, where we set up our tower and call from and just call from the same spot every day. I mean, it's it's only it's less than a mile from there, so it's not like. You can't call a bull in yeah. from there because we do. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, those those big ones that you see and don't get yeah. <laughs> stick in your mind. You're like, oh, if I could have done this, then yeah. maybe we would have got him, but you never know. Yeah, I will say the Argo, you know, I've, like I said, I've progressed from the, the old days of the track vehicles to three-wheelers and four-wheelers, yeah. and I've been on side-by-sides, and I've been in Nodwells, and I've been in Weasels, and I've been in... I feel like just about everything imaginable yeah. now. And, uh, you know, besides those big amphibious track vehicles that maybe my granddad and them had back in the day, um, the Argo, I just, I can't speak highly enough about it. I mean, yeah. the thing is, it's slow. But like I said, you know, when you're out hunting, what's the hurry? There's, yep. You know, there's no hurry. And, uh, and they can haul a lot of weight, too. They can haul a lot of weight. And they, uh, they definitely will put you places that you'll look at it and you'll think, what the heck am I doing here? I should not be even be out here right now. This yeah. is like, I'm going to get myself into a predicament. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I've literally, I've had a full, I've had a, you know, 
a fully mature bull and another half of a bull in the back of mine with me and my wife and all of our camping gear. I'm going uphill and I'm pushing eight foot alders over and I am just going, Jeez. you know, and, uh, they really are just, well, they're not flippy, you know, they're not, they're so yeah. like long and stable, you know, and they come with their own problems just like anything else. They're, their maintenance. I mean, yeah. before season, there's like a, a whole ritual of taking all the tires off and checking all the bearings and going through all the chains and, you know, you're lubing all the chains and you have, you know, different greasers yeah. to seal the, seal the bearings on them. And, uh, I mean, there's just a whole, there's this whole maintenance part of it you know, to get them prepped and ready because yeah. the last thing you want is to have problems out in the field. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so yeah, there's, there's that part of it, but you, they're just, and they're really simple machines. They really are. They're just, uh, they're a little small, little engine, just low geared, you know, chain driven. But, uh, man, I just, they just have, have totally impressed me what those things will do. Nice. I, and I've been out with other guys with, with their Argos and, you know, I got mine there and we've been able to go places that, you know, nobody else would go to. And the thing about them is when you take them out, your the intention is to go out into areas where there is no trails yep. or anything. I mean, that's to me anyway, that's, that's the whole purpose of having one is to yeah. go where nobody else will go. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, the, the side by sides and things like that. I've, I've done the player six wheel side by sides and all that stuff. And they will not even come close to going to, where the Argos will go. Yeah. You know, the new ones are super nice too. They, the new ones are like EFI, you know, and things like oh, that. The new Argos are feeling Yeah. And they're, new. they're, uh, and they're expensive, you know, they yeah. really are, but you can, you can find Argos shopping around or whatever, a, a used one, you know, for a decent price, an older one. I have, an yeah. I have an older one. I have an older conquest. So. Well, frankly, like a lot of those, you know, you could probably get a decent Argo for a lot less than you get a side by side for. Oh, for and sure. And they'll do way more, you know. For sure. There Some may the, be certain country that's like, yeah, you could do as much and do it a little faster with yeah. a side by side, but Argo's a pretty. Oh, absolutely. You know, the like this new, these new Bombardier side by side and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, they're getting like $25,000 for these things or yeah. more, whatever it is, you know. When you could pick up a decent, you know, used uh, Avenger with tracks and low time hours and stuff on it for, you know, a lot less. Yeah. And you're going to go places that you never even thought imaginable with that thing. Yeah. First, you go spend twice the money for this Bombardier. If your intention is to go out and be fast and rip around and, you know, play and have fun or whatever, yeah. or go on the same trails that everybody else is going on you know, for the same one moose that might be out yeah. there, you know, then, then, you know, that's, that's for you, you know, but, but for me to get away from people and just really get out into some of these very difficult areas, uh, I just think the Argos just kick ass. Nice. Yeah. They, and yeah, like you said, the weight and everything else in them, um, you gotta have, you gotta have sets of tools and things like that yeah. with you like anything else but be that, a little well and they're probably yeah like I said you know simple machines it there's probably a learning curve getting used to fixing them it's like my old outboard this old like 94 mm -hmm. johnson two-stroke that i'd finally before it finally gave up the ghost like i was just to the point where i could fix just about anything yep. in the field that wasn't major yep. and then something major happened yeah <laughs> 
yeah, with anything in Alaska, any toy like that that you're you're going out there with, um, from yeah, boats to airplanes and everything else, I think it's something I've definitely learned is you need to be prepared for the unexpected yeah. out in the field because the last thing you want is to be way out there and uh, you know you're screwed. You're up shit creek without a paddle, you know. Mm-hmm. So I always carry, depending on what I'm taking out, I have a whole you know, retrieval kit I'll bring with me, a rope along. I always have like an axe and a saw, mm-hmm. and a spare bolts, uh, tape, stuff for uh, repairing busted hose lines. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I just, I always carry this whole kit with me, like almost a survival kit. Oh, you know, yeah. When I'm out in the field, depending on what, what it is I'm taking out there because I just had a, uh, I've had uh, so many just gigged out experiences growing up, you know, where, you know, skis are sticking backwards and snow machines yeah. out trapping and handlebars are busted up the, <clears throat> you know, or something goes out on the engine or, you know, whatever, yeah, whatever one, it is. And I remember one time with, um, it was with, uh, I think it was Billy Galligan's sled. Remember him? Billy Galligan. I don't think so. From call it from school. It was it was in school. I was Martin trapping, and I think it was his sled. He had old Polar, you know, old old Polaris with the metal skis. Oh, yep. We were running my Martin line, which was just like super twisty, just barely, yeah. just barely cut out enough to squeeze mm-hmm. a snow machine between the trees. And he had hit a tree or something and busted a tie rod end. Oh, yep. And sit there, and I mean, and we're like a few miles from the truck, mm-hmm. and it's zero or whatever cold, mm-hmm. you know man, how are we going to like limp this thing back? I didn't, I didn't have a toboggan or nothing, or maybe yep. I did, but it was just enough to carry like my Martin gear and, and traps mm-hmm. and shit. But, uh, we had to, those, those metal skis with like the, they had the reliefs cut in them or whatever. Yep. We ended up cutting a little like spruce pole. Oh yeah. Just wide enough to fit, but and like notching it. So it would fit in those reliefs between the skis. Yep. And like where it would, and it had the actually notch part was a little long, so it fit perfectly between the skis when they're straight and then i had a bunch of stainless wire wired the front of the oh, yeah. or trapper wire something like that wire the front of his skis together yeah. and then that used like his one ski to direct yep. that other one i was pretty proud of that one i've uh i've totally been there <laughs> yeah you know those old tundra twos i don't know if you've wrote oh yeah things, yeah a lot they had that little metal piece on the those pogo shocks yep. and i can't remember how many times i broke those things out in the field i ended up just starting to carry like extras with me yeah so i could repair it while i was out there but yeah i did the exact same thing you're cruising along and you're you're kind of ripping and all of a sudden there's a little stump under the snow you didn't see and then the next thing you know mm-hmm. one ski is faced the opposite yeah. way and you're like ah oh, <laughs> shit you know i broke another yeah. one you know and then I'm out there with the trapping wire, wiring shit all up and, you know, just rigging it together to limp yourself yeah. out of the woods. But, but yeah, if you don't have that kind of stuff with you and you're out there, I mean, you could be, you can be in shit and le- oh, yeah. unless well, you got somebody to come get you. Well, even like, remember when we went with your brother and your grandpa out to that lake yep. in the spring that one time with the, with the ranger Yep. and got st- luckily like we, cause we buried the thing yeah. and luckily there was one rock yes. that we were barely able to reach the winch to. yeah <laughs> yeah i remember that. I, I just remember you were sick as you I had was you say, had some kind of wuhan plague yeah i i was gonna say i remember this that was a long time ago but <laughs> being uh the sickest i think i've ever been out doing anything like that i just remember just feeling like totally worthless like yeah 
<laughs> in fact, I think you ended up having to drive the truck back. I think out of there I did. Yeah, I literally just could not. Do you were anything. like you were okay in the morning because I think I drove. I drove down yeah. somewhere to meet you, and then we we rode from there. And then yeah, you were okay in the morning, but like by the time we got to the lake and started fishing, you just like crashed and oh yeah, <laughs> injured the whole time. I went downhill quick. Yeah, I, I don't remember what the deal was. I ended up getting some sort of virus or something, and yeah, I was I was done for a week. So you know, luckily I wasn't out on a sheep hunt on that yeah. one or something. Oh, but man, yeah, I have I've been pretty lucky sheep hunting. You know, I'm not worried about getting sick on a sheep hunt. I'm worried about maybe something I catch right beforehand catching up with me because oh, it's not yeah. like you're ever going to get sick out. You yep, know. you're not it's, around. It's anybody. hanging around these swarms of people that's going to get you sick. Yep, but uh, no, it was. Yeah, it's it's funny, but yeah, we're pretty pretty fortunate up here with all the you know just able to do stuff. I just it made me think the other day I ran into and someone I heard someone say, "Oh, you know, now that we're all like able to leave our homes and stuff," I'm like, "I never stopped." You know? Yeah, I definitely didn't slow down. I have uh, some restrictions, unfortunately. I, yeah. I have to kind of follow for for my for work. work. Yeah. Um, but you know. Other than that, if if I was not at work, I was not th- even thinking about it or yeah. what's going on with the whole th- thing in the yeah. country. All Too busy I, flying your airplane and yeah. out hunting, and yeah, I'm like, that's it's, the way to be. It's man. not gonna, it's not gonna slow me down, you know. I and uh, I, I, I don't even know what to, <laughs> I don't even know what to think about it all. Yeah, no, I, me either. You know, for me, I I got away from Facebook and any sort of social media and all that stuff a while ago because. I don't know. I've just been secluding myself more and more. Yeah. I don't know anything. <laughs> which that's is going why on I need to news. be. Which is why I need to be more proactive about talking. You know, staying in touch with you. Yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, nobody knows what's going on in my life. <laughs> I'm, I've totally just secluded myself and become more of a hermit. You know, yeah, like just getting more disgruntled. Oh, that's all as right. I get a little older. I guess you know, <laughs> it's like I don't know anything going on in the world with you know, elections or the news or what the heck's going on out there in the world. I was like, you know what? I just stopped caring. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do my own thing and I really don't give a shit. It's yeah. going to be what it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, as long as they don't come and knocking on my door telling me, you know, that I can't do something that I love to do or anymore, whatever it is, yeah. you know, then whatever, you know, I don't really give a shit. <laughs> you know, that's kind of where I'm at with it. Yeah. You can only control what you can control. And a lot of times that's not much. Yeah. But, yeah, well, I probably better let you get out of here, man. But, uh, yeah, I appreciate you stopping. You got a long drive home, but I appreciate you stopping by, man. It's good to good to see you, good to catch up. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, and, like I said, we'll have to get yeah, sometime organized. Maybe, yeah, I can meet up with you or something and try to get jingles on. I, I yeah. left him a message one time, then I saw he called me back a different time. We just haven't been able to connect. So Yeah, I might actually stop in and see the old boy on the way home i kind of check in on him every now and then yeah he's getting he's getting he is an old boy huh he's getting up there yeah he's i think his uh you know his sheep hunting days have come and gone and he's uh he's still getting out there though you know yeah just like any of those old boys you know if they you want to keep going to be that that elderly age you know the late 80s and 90s and i i think you just got to keep moving just oh yeah you never stop doing stuff but you know well, anyway. cool, man. Yeah, thanks. Well, 
If uh, you enjoy Tundra Talk, I appreciate it if you leave a good review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. And if you feel the need to leave a bad one, I guess it's all right, too. But <laughs> thanks for listening. And if you have any comments or questions, you can email podcast at tundratalkak.com. Thanks.